we have to reduce the total amount people drive by 25%. The number just keeps going up with every single year you allow the car makers to sell SUVs and trucks. To think that we're going to magically move to electric vehicles while decarbonizing the other sectors of our emissions is just delusional. Cars are fundamental to our society. So we need to electrify everything we possibly can when it comes to mobility. If you don't have a car, you are locked out of society. And that is now. And that's unacceptable. And that's irregardless of if the climate is changing. The car is the last resort, if any. I could buy an e-bike for less than it costs to insure my car every year, right? Amsterdam was never supposed to look like Amsterdam. Copenhagen was never supposed to look like Copenhagen. Cars are cars are cars. Electric cars won't reduce congestion. They won't solve our parking problems. They will still kill people, especially when all the giant pickups and SUVs hit the street. If we're going to have any kind of debate, which is really a phony debate between bikes and EVs, it's really about the public infrastructure. It's making it such a wonderful environment to walk, bike, or take transit. You don't even think about taking a vehicle. Cars need to change. We have to stop building giant cars. We need to talk about speed delimiters. We need to do all the things to cars that they're doing to scooters. We need to control them, even if they don't have the infrastructure yet. Cars are a pyramid scheme. In fact, cities will have to ban cars. You know, there's a lot of people who, for them, it's just, I have no other way to get around. However, if you could provide those people with more convenient ways to get around, they would welcome the alternative. It is possible. You can live a car light lifestyle. Okay. This is going to be a good discussion. This is Bike Talk Live on KTFK, now on Zoom. Thanks to COVID, this is your co-host, Don Ward. I'm here with Nick Richard and Lindsay Sturman. We are going to talk EVs today, electric vehicles. And we're here today to discuss this because of a tweet storm that happened recently. And it was a debate about electric vehicles and whether they're actually the solution moving forward and the solution to a lot of things, traffic, climate change, and, uh, you know, basically livability. So um, why don't we start, we'll bring on Matthew, who, uh, let me find you here, Matthew Lewis. Now you sent, tell us how this all went down. You, You were on Twitter one day and you tweeted something. I've never tweeted. That's the first, the first rule is never tweet, right? We can all agree. Okay. You know, everyone on this here, and I think most of the people who would even care to engage this conversation are freaked out about climate change. And so there's sort of an organizing principle around like what needs to happen, like actually needs to happen. And, and I think we, I, I don't want to talk her, but I'm, I'm interested in others' perspectives, but the climate doesn't care about our politics is kind of where this comes down. It's just carbon emissions. That's it, period. It's just carbon emissions. And so trying to reverse engineer where we need to get on carbon emissions, you know, then you start to run into politics and like, what can you actually do? And, and what do you have to do? And, and that's, that's the sort of overarching framing for this, for me anyway. And, and I've, you know, I've worked in climate policy and energy policy for about 20 years. So that's the, that's the frame I bring to the conversation. And if you had asked me this question 15 years ago, I would have said, you know, amazing EVs are coming. There's this guy, Elon Musk, who's going to build an electric car and he's going to like change the market. And, you know, some of the car manufacturers were talking about the things they could do. And I think it's important for this, in this context 
the car makers have sort of expected for a long time that they were going to get cracked down on around pollution. Um, and they were always fighting it. And this is another really important piece of the puzzle here. Um, the car industry itself, like it's never really wanted to be a willing player in this game. It's always been resistant. It's always cheated and lied. And, you know, the VW scandal a couple of years ago, people were like, oh, look, they lied. And anyone who's been paying attention to the car industry is like, unsafe at any speed, 1972. Like we could go back through history and the car industry is just, this is just how they operate. If they, they get away with whatever they can. But so, so, you know, if you asked me 15 years ago, I would have said, yeah, electric vehicles are, are going to be a huge part of this. And, and here's the thing, like, I actually still believe that. Um, we absolutely have to convert the entire vehicle fleet to electric vehicles. There's, there's, there's not an option. The question is really coming back to this question about climate math specifically, because climate is a timing problem in that carbon is permanent. So once you put it in the atmosphere for all intents and purposes, it's up there for like a thousand years, right? So you don't get to take back the carbon that you put in the air now. So each year that we're allowing car makers to sell more SUVs, which by the way, are the number one selling vehicles globally, like it's SUVs and trucks everywhere, China, Europe, like everyone's doing SUVs now. It actually shrinks the amount of time you have to make your climate target. Because again, the climate doesn't care. <clears throat> so what's happened over the last, I don't know, I'm, I'm gonna point to Ethan at some point because he's actually done some research on this, but what's happened over the last seven-ish years is people started to sort of try to reverse engineer like, well, what year do you need everything to be electric cars in order to actually make that target work? And there's a guy at Carnegie Mellon University, I'd encourage you all to follow him, Costa Samaras, He's a, he, he works in transportation research. He did a really important paper on this. Guess what year you need 100% of car sales to be electric if you're gonna make your 2050, 2050 climate targets. It ends in two Probably weeks. something like 1990. <laughs> no, it, oh, it ends yeah. in two weeks. <laughs> we have until the end of 2020 for 100% of cars sold in the United States to be electric. If we're gonna use electric vehicles as the primary way to decarbonize the transportation sector. So that's where this sort for me, like that's the starting point. It's like this recognition that like, yes, do you have to electrify the fleet? Absolutely. But because we've missed that increment that we should have gained over the last 10 years, we now have to start filling in with other strategies and we have to be pretty aggressive about it. And, and what that means is you've got to stop driving by some percentage. In California, what we know, because our, the California Air Resources Board has already done this, and Melanie Curry is on, the, on here, which I'm, I'm Melanie, I'm very happy. I, I actually learned this reading Melanie. This is one of the things I love about this is like, I, there's all these people I've learned from on here. Um, but, but CARB did a report a couple of years ago and said, we actually have to reduce the total amount that people drive, inclusive of making 100% of cars electric. We have to reduce the total amount people drive by 25%. Okay, that's as of now. This year, car industry didn't have a great year, but they still are gonna sell 17 million cars in California. Is that right? 17 no, no, million that's, just in California? No way. Uh, no, US. No, no, that's US, US, US. Okay. Sorry, that's US, US. That's a lot. in the US last year. US, thank you, yes, yes. Okay. Thank you, thank you for the correction. Most of those are SUVs and trucks. That's also the case in California. And one of the reasons they're allowed to do this is because of this trick in called zero emission vehicle credits. And people don't know this, but Tesla is actually only profitable 
because they sell these credits to car makers who, will, who don't want to sell electric cars in California. So, mm. so they actually sell their Zev credits to like Ford. So Ford can sell more F-150s in California. Okay. So this is the current state of affairs. Like we've got a domestic auto industry and a global auto industry. Remember, they all went sided with, almost all of them sided with Trump. There were a couple who didn't to try to block California's clean air standards. They're still going gangbusters on SUVs and trucks. We've missed the target by, by which we could just use an EV strategy to actually decarbonize the transportation sector. And the people who monitor these things from a policy perspective are saying, okay, well, now we have to reduce driving by 25%. That's if we started this year. Each year we allow continued gasoline sales, that percentage goes up. So it's gonna be 30% we have to reduce driving. It's gonna be 40% we have to reduce driving. It's gonna be 50% we have to reduce driving. The number just keeps going up with every single year you allow the car makers to sell SUVs and trucks. That's just the math. So where I came down on this is sort of saying like, well, everybody's advocating EVs. I am kind of one of those people. I mean, I'm less and less as this math becomes more intractable. But, but the point is, and here's the, here's the thing, and I wanted, I'm gonna stop because this is my sort of table setting piece of it. It's actually not harder to reduce driving by 50% than it is by 30%. And the reason is because of the intervention you make to achieve that 30%. You don't make 30% of a bus lane. You make 100% of a bus lane. You don't make a subway that only serves like 30% of your city. You make a subway that serves the whole city. So you actually, it's, it's, it's probably easier to get people to drive less at a higher level just because of the nature of how you plan public transportation. You want very high ridership. Whereas with a car, what does everybody know about a car? It's idle 95% of the time. It's never in use. And that's only possible because the economics of cars are cuckoo. I think we'd all agree, like, it's just a nuts industry, like, in, in terms of the way consumers make decisions about cars. So that's where I came down. I'm trying to make the point, that is, which is, yes, every car should be an electric vehicle. But as a climate activist, I look, look at this and say, and we've missed some really important milestones. So we no longer have the option of leaning as much on EVs as we did before. And that just that's just getting worse with time. So that's that's kind of I, that wasn't exactly what my tweets say, but that's you know more or less what they're saying. <laughs> what what we're saying is is we need public transportation and walkable cities and so forth so that we're reducing the amount of energy we're putting into transportation overall, right? Is that basically where we're going with this? Um and you got piled on for kind of trying to make that point in, in. I got piled on at on, the PM10. It's a particulate pollution thing, which okay. is a different issue entirely. But particulates, but, right? Yeah. Yeah, but that's a whole other. That's a whole other thing. And I just want to be okay. clear: it wasn't a pile on. It was. It was a very vigorous Twitter discourse. Okay. Um, had something to say if you want to. Yeah, let's bring in some more people and let's introduce everybody. I, I'm sorry, I didn't introduce everybody here. Um, I have a list in front of me, but why don't we do a round table and have everybody sort of introduce themselves and then we'll move forward with Ethan. Um, Matthew, why don't we start with you and introduce everybody? So I'm Matthew Lewis. I've been working in climate and energy policy for 20 years, and now I work for California EMB trying to solve the housing and transportation crisis in California. Well, why don't we, why don't we have, uh, Lloyd talk to us, give us an intro real quick here. Okay, I'm Lloyd Alter. I um, am 
formerly an architect, now a writer about uh, sustainable design for treehugger.com. And I teach sustainable design at Ryerson University in Toronto. And I wrote the original PM 2.5 tweet that seems to have started all of this. Ah, there we go. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. Okay, we'll, we'll get back to that. Let's, let's do the roundtable real quick here of everybody. Let's go to uh, Melanie Curry. Hi, I'm Melanie Curry. I write for Streets Blog California about sustainable transportation that covers a lot of stuff. Don't expect me to remember details like Matthew can, but I remember a lot of what I've written, including stuff about bikes, electric cars, CARB, CTC, California Transportation Commission, stuff like that. Okay, and let's do, what else do we have here? Ethan, why don't we get your introduction? Sure. Ethan Elkind. I work at UC Berkeley School of Law. I direct our climate program at the Law School Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment. And I'm pro-bike and pro-EV. <laughs> awesome. Sandy? I, I guess this is a Canadian thing, like Lloyd. I, I was a city planner uh, for 25 years, city of Vancouver, and then I worked internationally. And now I write for um, pricetags.ca which is an urban blog based in Vancouver. And I also teach at Simon Fraser University in walkability and public spaces. Amazing. And if, I, if I can say one thing quickly, she and I both put up posts about this subject within seconds of each other. It was really hilarious. I put up a it post so and she funny. put up a post. It was very funny. <laughs> right, and I, I think the synthesis that um, Lloyd and I are talking about is that we're seeing EVs being this great God that's going to save our cities and allow seniors to keep um, being motored around long past the time they have driver's licenses. When in actual fact, they're just going to create the same kind of congestion. And it appears they're going to create the same kind of emission problems due to things like brake dust um, that we had previously experienced with carbon emissions. Okay, let's let's go to uh, who haven't we heard from yet? Matthew Klippenstein? Matthew Klippenstein. I've worked in the uh, clean tech space for about 20 years. Uh, hydrogen fuel cells, solar and wind. I worked on or I helped administer the province of British Columbia's innovative EV infrastructure rebates for apartment buildings for a couple of years. And I guess I fall, uh, I'm, I'm happy for any type of ZEV transportation. Uh, that said, I think that uh, EVs, uh, Passenger vehicles are necessary, but insufficient. There, nice and short. Okay, Captain Proton. That's, a, that's me. I'm Sapio Spiritual on Twitter. Um, I've been working on and researching transportation for about 20 years. I wrote a ebook and a thesis specifically on the emissions from all aspects of transportation. And I was an activist in New York, California, Oregon, um, and I rode my bike from New York to Toronto back in the day. Wow. Nice. Okay. And do we have Grace Ping? Let's go and bring her on the stage. Um, okay. I, I am the, um, I'm currently the League of Women Voters LA County Natural Resources Chair. And my portfolio includes like uh, preservation of the environment and public health. Um, and transportation and housing. And before that, um, I have a, I'm a physicist. I have a PhD in chemical physics and I've spent like over, over two decades working at various national labs as a specialist in 
uh, weather and climate data analysis and data curation, data quality control. But um, transportation is our largest emitter in LA County. 44% uh, of our greenhouse gas emissions in LA County is transportation. And I don't know why we're spending so much time arguing about whether we're going to decarbonize our electricity sector by 90% or 100% when we're not touching the 44% that is junk car driving. Mm. Wow, what a panel we have here. You guys are amazing. Uh, we have uh, also Harv and Nicole. Okay, let's go to Harv. Okay, I'm Harv Wolian. Uh, I, I'm a lifelong bicyclist. Uh, I believe that micromobility is the answer. And uh, when it comes to electric vehicles, there's no comparison between an electric bicycle and an electric car. Uh, but uh, what, what I'd like to bring to this discussion tonight is a discussion of the power relationships between the forms of transportation. As Matthew says, uh, if we could achieve the goal of, of having 100% electric vehicles by the end of the year, guess what would happen on the 1st of January? What would happen is all the lights would go out. <laughs> We can't, we, can't, we can't do this. We can't do this uh, without a tremendous increase in the power grid, which is not happening. The power grid as it is now is marginal. Every time there's a hot day in the summer, the, the power, there's power grid trading and, and wielding and, and, and uh, they're moving around to get uh, power to temporarily keep everything going. If everyone plugged in their electric car at once, game over. So that's, well, I'm a uh, California board certified consulting engineer. Uh, and uh, I work my career at the Department of Water and Power generating station design. So that's what I feel I can bring to this discussion tonight. Okay, let's bring Nicole Murray on as our- Hi. Yeah. Yes. I think I'm last. I think, I think uh, so. we got everybody at this point. This is this is amazing, though. So go ahead. Uh, so I'm Nicole. Uh, I live in New York. I run. Uh, I'm part of Democratic Socialists of America, and I run the Transit Justice uh, Subcommittee of Eco Socialists. So, <clears throat> excuse me. It's funny when Harb said power. I immediately went to like political and social power and not actual literal <laughs> electric power. So I do like to think a lot about the relationship of social, political, and economic power and transportation and how people use it uh, in society. Um, and not so much like the grid necessarily, although that's important as well. So um, that's the perspective I like to bring to transportation in terms of that realm of power um, and how uh, people use bikes, cars, et cetera, to, uh, to navigate our current um, society. So, uh, I think Grace has something to say about statistics yeah. power. Let's bring on Grace. Um, I'm, I'm also the team lead for the, um, the power, the elect, the, um, energy committee for the League of Women Voters California. And I learned that if we were to, um, electrify all if we were to electrify all the vehicles, we'd have to like double the size of the electricity generation of the United States, which is not happening. About 25% of the um, power in the 
electricity used in the US comes from coal, which we need to retire as soon as possible. And 19% um, comes from nuclear, and we haven't built a nuclear power plant in decades. Most of our nuclear power comes from places that have, are about to expire or have already expired and are working past their engineered lifetimes. So to think that we're going to magically move to electric vehicles while decarbonizing the other sectors of our emissions is just delusional. Okay, that's pretty sobering. Um... I think uh, Ethan has some. Yeah, let's go to Ethan. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah, there's some information I'd like to correct. Um, let me just start with the big picture here. And I think, you know, Matthew really laid out the urgency, which is important. But let's just take a step back and think about the big picture. What we really want to see is that everybody who wants to live in a neighborhood where you can walk, bike, take transit, you don't have to rely on cars. We should be building more of those. That's a no-brainer. And we're, we suck at that in the United States. We suck so badly, and it's urgent that we correct that. So that's the critical thing that I want to say. That And it's, it's by law that we are building. I mean, I, I started out you know, as a bike activist, and I started to get into uh, development and so forth. And you, you, you know, the, I think the one big problem is the parking minimum requirement for when you build new buildings. We can't build dense, we can't build walkable neighborhoods anymore because we have these laws that say that half the land of every development has to go to parking. So that creates a lot of space in a sort of car oriented situation that you cannot, it's not like we're going to be able to rebuild this. It would, take us, it would take us hours to catalog all the laws that stand in the way of why mm. we can't build neighborhoods that work, that have been proven over time to lead to greater human happiness, more sustainable, environmentally speaking, living, and just better exercise, happier environments. I mean, we, it's, it's parking policies, it's restrictive zoning, it's dysfunctional permitting. I mean, it goes on. It's disinvestment in transit infrastructure. It's the fact that we dedicate so much public space to automobiles instead of cars and I mean, instead of bikes and transit and pedestrian. So it goes on and on. But we fundamentally don't build those kinds of neighborhoods. And we need to get better at that. It's politically, unfortunately, very challenging, although Matthew's group, California Yimby, is doing great work trying to change the political dynamics. We're at the cusp. I hope it changes. But let's be real. We still have a lot of people who are going to be driving and the people who are biking and taking transit, even to this day, where are they getting their products from? They're shipped in on, on trucks. They're, they're, people are driving you know, their groceries to their house during times of COVID. I mean, cars are fundamental to our society, as, you know, and they will be going forward. We hope to a lesser extent, but they still are. So we need to electrify everything we possibly can when it comes to mobility. And so th that leads to my second point, which is that when we talk about electric vehicles, what we're really talking about are batteries. And batteries don't just have to go into personal passenger vehicles. They go into bikes. They go into scooters. They can go into buses. They can go into trains even. So what we've seen with electric vehicles on the passenger side is an amazing set of, of transformation innovation on the battery side. Battery prices, lithium-ion battery prices have declined almost 90% in the last 10 years, which is why you see all these scooters on the sidewalks. And this is why we actually have hope of, of hopefully averting the worst of climate change because of this incredible progress on batteries. And it's because the electrical, electric vehicle market has really encouraged this transformation. And now we're seeing its application to trucks, to bikes, to scooters, et cetera. 
So, you know, this, this technology, and this leads to my third point, it's important for the climate and you see a lot of misinformation around batteries and why they may or may not be bad for the environment. So, you know, you see the oil and gas industry, a lot of attacks on the mining of batteries. And yes, we, can, we need to do a lot to clean up the mining sector, but they conveniently let go all of the negative impacts of oil and gas production around the world and how detrimental that is. And then you hear about, you know, stuff like particulate matter and brake tire dust. And look, that's, you know, that's, that's an issue, but let's be real. What's causing the mega drought in California, the derechos in Iowa, the flooding in Texas, the sea level rise, it's not dust from brakes or tires, okay? It's just carbon emissions. We've got to address carbon emissions and we've got to address it from transportation. So then the other point is around the electricity grid and people love to say, well, the electricity grid's dirty. Well, in fact, the electricity grid is getting dramatically cleaner renewables and natural gas, and I hope we phase out natural gas soon, have absolutely decimated coal. And this is happening now around the world. And then when you think about you know, the impacts of everybody charging at once, this is not gonna happen overnight, this transformation. We're not gonna have 100% electric vehicles overnight, but we are planning for this. We have a California Energy Commission, for example, here in California that is planning for this and making sure that we have policies in place that people are charging their vehicles, when there's surplus renewables available and not overloading the grid. And in fact, if you look at the studies of electric vehicle usage to date, it's actually put a downward pressure on the price of electricity because what electricity, electric vehicle uh, drivers are doing, they're making better use of the electricity grid, which already has a lot of fixed costs. So by charging more, they're actually making a more efficient use of our electricity system and driving down electricity rates. So there's been great research on this, which I'd be happy to point anybody to, but we can do even better on this front because we can have dynamic pricing on our electricity rates that encourage people to use and charge when they really need to. And then the last point I would just make is that this innovation on batteries, which is affecting transportation, also benefits our electricity grid because now you're, you don't see a solar field proposed now without lithium ion batteries accompanying it. The price of batteries decreasing so dramatically, we now have solar plus storage, which means we have a firmer energy supply, which means we can decarbonize our grid more rapidly. We need other energy storage technologies for sure, but what we're seeing on lithium ion batteries is well beyond just passenger vehicles. It's all sorts of mobility and it's the electricity grid as well. So it is probably the single most important clean tech climate addressing technology that we have innovated. And it's really started here in California. It's a success story we should all be proud of. And it's giving, it's giving us hope that we actually have a chance to start to bend the curve on emissions like we need to. So I'll leave it at that and, and let others take over. I think uh, Nicole is the next up. Yeah, so this kind of stems off of Ethan's first point um, that which I don't remember what it was at this point, but I, I remember you uh, mentioned something this, but like basically when we're talking about switching what we have now to EVs, we're not talking about changing how we interact with the built environment at all. We're just swapping one mode for the same mode, but just with a different fuel source. So, you know, we have the electric Hummer. Um, I remember they, whoever makes that uh, posted the, the image of it. And, you know, people were rightly like, this sucks. <laughs> you know, this is just like, uh, it's, it's worthless. And one of the comments under it was, um, 
it's never good enough for you people. It's electric. What else do you want? And it's not understanding that there's so much more that comes from problems that come from automobility, personal automobility um, that aren't addressed uh, in climate change. You know, that's, that's a huge part of it. But, you know, what we're talking about here is a society that is built around, you know, with the exception of a few cities in America and even not even the whole city, parts of it is built around automobility. And if we don't change that dramatically and quickly, electrifying that power dynamic isn't going to get us very far. It may change, uh, you know, the smog and it will certainly help with climate change. But we're not talking about this dramatic shift in how we interact with our built environment that we're going to need for the rest of our lives, you know, to change to, you know, our, our living, our lifestyle so that, you know, we're not just like these atomized people who, you know, have our own our own chariots that, you know, that we need to move and store and, you know, have brake dust and everything else. And if you don't have one of those, you're locked out. Like in almost every city in America, except maybe New York and Boston, DC, parts of it, if you don't have a car, you are locked out of society. And that is now, and that's unacceptable. And that's irregardless of if the climate is changing, you know, there's just, there's so much more to it than, than, than the carbon emissions that just switching uh, the, the fuel source yeah, it maybe solves one problem, but we're not really solving what the bigger problem is, which is our relationship to the to our environments and how we navigate through it. The only way to change that is through public transportation, through bikes, through walking, um, you know, some cars. I like to see cars as targeted accessibility tools and work tools rather than the default mode of getting around um, for, you know, getting to a cup of coffee. You know, when I lived in the suburbs, I'd drive to get a cup of coffee. Absurd. Mm-hmm. The amount of power that I would, the resources that went into me going to Starbucks. Unbelievable. It's just not, we can't do it with, with EVs. It's. Nicole, nuts. can I ask, is I actually, I'm from New York as a New Yorker and, and being so active politically, do you feel frustrated at all with the, the left? that's not <laughs> Bill de Blasio. Oh, well, I don't, well, I don't know what you're saying about Blasio, but no on him. He's a no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it, the thing about cars is interesting. It's that, you know, people like rail against like uh, private housing, private, you know, all kinds of whatever else. But somehow cars, it's fine. Like, yeah, we should give $30,000 to GM. Why? <laughs> like, it makes no sense. Uh, you know, and then the you need to be have good sight. You need to have um, vision. You need to have all your faculties. You can't be too young. You can't be too old. There's so there really are so many limitations to driving. But for some reason, I guess because so much of our society is built around it, it's just this total blind spot where it's like, we need cars, we need cars, we need to be able to get around. But people don't have this like it might be a lack of imagination and it's frustrating in new york where we have do have so many options you know they're not nearly as good as they could be um but where you know we have opportunities and especially if they're expanded to have a full life where we have accessibility i don't necessarily mean that in like just the you know in a disabled way but like being able to access civic life we need to expand that and make that so that's the default so that the car is the option the last resort if any where it is that targeted tool for very specific needs it is frustrating when people can't seem to see past it and where the 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 car even in new york is seen as like the key to mobility when it doesn't have to be and it's it's not and that's the kind of future that i want to see people building towards where the car whether it's ev or not is like the last choice I think uh, Harv is next. 
Uh, okay, well, I think I stated my case, but uh, so far I don't disagree with anyone on this panel. However, I think the, the points about emissions and carbon footprint are overemphasized because there's a lot of discussion that took that can take place on either side. I believe that the emissions and carbon footprint of internal combustion engine vehicles and electric vehicles are pretty darn close. Uh, so, like I said, when I introduced myself, uh, the, the thing to me is the, where do we get the power? You can't just plug in, when you plug in your electric vehicle, you just don't get a free charge. You, what you're doing is moving the pollution somewhere else. You're moving it, say Los Angeles, you're moving it from Los Angeles to a power plant somewhere. How does the power plant generate the power? Well, so as has been discussed already, either from fossil fuels or nuclear, but if from fossil fuels, then we still have that pollution. It's just moved elsewhere. Uh, and again, uh, I think the key is, is micromobility. We, again, we won't get rid of cars and trucks, especially for deliveries and whatnot. Uh, but in various so you, parts you, the- you could say there's, there's an advantage to at least compartmentalizing the pollution, right? If you, if we move the pollution out of cities, out of, you know, millions of people's lungs and we put it somewhere at a power plant in the desert and then we can figure out from there what to do with it. That's not better. That's That's not how it works. It gets sent to poor communities that have are already suffering. I mean, where it gets generated is usually in a place where there's a lot of people living who are already suffering great, um, you know, setbacks in their health from pollution. So like, no, compartmentalizing is not really a solution. It, it's, a, okay. it's a huge problem. I think uh, Matt is next. Matt, um, Kay. Super, thanks. Well, yeah, I guess um, reflecting perhaps what uh, others are saying, I would suggest that um, that really shifting from combustion to electric cars isn't really disruptive. It's not horse to car kind of transformation. It is a it is a it's an evolution as opposed to a revolution. I would suggest that the what we're thinking in the short term, in the, like the two year time scale, yeah, it's very hard to see micro mobility or public transit making a large dent. I would suggest that we will see a lot more in the ten year time frame because. Um, that's just the way that, that these changes work. As an example, 12 years ago, um, a Canadian party uh, ran for government on a $40 per ton carbon tax. Now, 10 years from now, um, we will have a $170 Canadian, maybe 120 US per ton carbon tax. Uh, I, I think that uh, there is there's much to be done with um, electric vehicles, but the true transformation as, uh, as others have talked about that many people want, I think will come down to micro mobility, you know, or, uh, land, pl- uh, urban, urban planning, and so forth. Uh, some of the issues that are identified as you can't do some of these changes on the spot, absolutely true. But in the longer time frames, um, they they will be uh, quite possible. That's it. You you were um, I saw you put in the chat that Vancouver's moving to um, trying to move to fifty. 50- oh, right. So yes, yeah, so um, and uh, perhaps this is actually more Sandy's specialty than mine, but uh, 
right now about 50% of um, uh, what the transportation trips uh, originating in the city of Vancouver, not the, the entire area, but the city of Vancouver are non-passenger car. They're uh, active transport, cycling, uh, public transit. As part of its climate emergency, Vancouver now wants that to go to 67% by 2030. You can be sure in 2040, it's gonna be like 80% or something like that. Now, not every city is Vancouver. Vancouver has a lot going for it, has a lot of density, but I, I'm absolutely certain that as we get more bike lanes in more cities, as it's not just the Vancouver's, but uh, you know, subsequent cities do these kinds of efforts, we will see micromobility uh, in the in the absolute ascendancy with uh, like battery electric vehicles even, like the, the total addressable market right now is 50%, right? Apart from taxi cabs, which aren't sort of personally owned, the goal is to get that to 33% in 10 years. And it's gonna be 25 or 20% 20 in, in 20 years. So um, it's like, it's hard to, you know, dominate something when you have a shrinking market share. So um, as with the, uh, my, my fellow micro mobility, uh, is destiny, folks. I think that is the path. It will take a long way to get there. We don't know how to get there yet, but that's certainly the direction we're going. I could buy an e-bike for less than it costs to insure my car every year, right? So it's hard to see that not eventually uh, functioning into people's choices. Matt, Luce, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is, is just to point out that the the for, at least in the climate community, electricity is a problem that's going to be solved. There's a pathway. Most countries are on it. Uh, California is ahead of most states, but even most of U.S. states are getting there. So, so I, I think that there's a there's a lingering question about equity with with the way energy is both consumed and who who it has the impacts on that I think is central to this question, um, which is where are we putting the impacts. Um, but there's another, so I want to, I, I, I want, I'm sure there's others on this call who want to address that. I just wanted to flag that, that a lot of what we're talking about here is, you know, pollution is out of sight but, and out of mind for the privileged. It's not out of sight and out of mind for the people who are living with it. And so that's where this, I think that's where this PM 2.5 question comes in because we know that the worst air pollution is in communities of color and, and in places that don't have political power. But what, but I wanted to note was the real, the, where, where micromobility meets its, hits its stride. And, and the reason I'm really calling on the electric vehicle community and the people who've been pushing that as a solution is because of the gap between where we need to be and where we are. All the other solutions in transportation, the walkable neighborhoods, the bus lanes, um, uh, the electric bikes, I'm a huge fan. I don't have one, I've ridden one a couple of times. Um, but you know, all of those things, they actually make it possible and easier to do what you have to do to electrify the rest of the vehicle fleet. So there are parts of the United States where you will never be able to solve transportation problems with micromobility or a bus. And it's because we've locked in a land use pattern over the last hundred years where there's people living in neighborhoods and areas where it's just like, it's gonna be really hard to get a bus out to them. We have to provide those neighborhoods with rapid transition into electric vehicles. But in order for that to actually add up to a climate solution, we also have to look at the two thirds of Americans who live within an urban area, most of whose car trips are less than five miles and start thinking, why the hell are we gonna just transition them to an electric vehicle when a significant chunk of those trips could be met by other means? And, and importantly, when a significant chunk of those trips 
have to be met by other means if we're going to make these climate targets. And that's why I get really excited about what's happening in cities is because, you know, people say, oh, you can never do this. You can never do that. Amsterdam was never supposed to look like Amsterdam. Copenhagen was never supposed to look like Copenhagen. If you had said to a Parisian in 2005 that they were going to have cars banned for most of the city by 2020, they would have laughed you out of school because French people love driving too. So this, this notion that this is a uniquely American problem or that there aren't ways to get there with political will just is, is belied by the places that have done this. And that's, that's where I get really excited because we're seeing now an actual movement uh, of people who sort of take these twinned problems of transportation and land use and then put right on top of it the fact that, look, the way we got here was through some really gross inequities in our country's history. These were deliberate racist decisions. I mean, like actually driven in large part by racist policy that led to sprawl, that led to freeway creation, that led to the pollution being in this neighborhood and not in that neighborhood. So there's a movement now of people who are committed to solving this. And, and I just want to point to the places that, have, when people say that's not possible, I just point to the places like, well, explain this because it's already happened. I think uh, Grace and Melanie have um, stuff to say and then we're thinking just everybody jump in. Okay, I think, um, I think about LA a lot because that's my job. And we are the, we're the densest statistical area in the United States with 7,000 people per square mile. And so we, and I live in what people think are the suburbs. Redondo Beach is considered a suburb, but my census tract is 16 and a half thousand people per square mile. The South Bay cities, Council of Governments did a um, transportation study, sustainability study, and they discovered that 50% of the trips within the suburban South Bay is one mile or less. And 70% of our trips are um, three miles or less. And the South Bay is mainly a flat alluvial plain. So it could easily be done with some steep hills. There's a 13% grade hill right next to my house. So with an e-bike, if there was a safe network for me to do it, I could run all my local trips with an e-bike. And the problem is it, there is no safe way to do it. I'm a very experienced cyclist, but most people would be terrified by um, riding on some of the roads that I ride on. They're very substandard. And I fully expect that I will die in when a car hits me. I've already been hit once, but fortunately it was low enough speed that I wasn't hurt. Um, Another thing that I wanted to say was that electrifying transportation doesn't have to mean electric cars. In LA County, we have about one vehicle, one car per licensed driver. So in my household, I have three licensed drivers. And what keeps people from having more cars is lack of space to park it or lack of money. So like where I, um, my family is fortunate financially, we would normally have three cars, but we don't. We have one car and we have, but we have two electric vehicles. We have an electric scooter that does the last mile problem to help us get to the transit station. And then we have an e-bike for our local trips. So that's two electric vehicles and one um, hybrid vehicle. It's doable. It's completely doable, even in the burbs and especially uh, in LA. That is something I hope for is that somehow 
we can convert LA to a scooter slash, you know, e-bike slash motorcycle town because that would seem to solve a lot of problems. Why don't we go to Lloyd? Uh, next, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I um, when I posted that original post about the PM two point five, it was uh, a long series, a, another edition in a series where I'm basically talking about the fact that you know when it comes down to it, cars are cars are cars. And Nicole really covered this. There was a point in there. Someone said Nicole for president and chat, <laughs> and I would support that because I don't think very many people actually read the post that I was talking about. But my last paragraph, which I'll just read a few lines from, was electric cars won't reduce congestion. They won't solve our parking problems. They will still kill people, especially when all the giant pickups and SUVs hit the street. And now we're learning they won't even even significantly reduce pollution. And the other thing when you're talking about climate is that these have huge embodied carbon in manufacturing them. Uh, electric cars are about 30% higher than regular cars. And they're all going to be these damn big F-150s with like 30 tons of carbon or I, my rough estimate to build that Hummer in that I showed at the top of the post is probably 60 tons of carbon. So when you talk about saying, oh, we're going to electrify the whole fleet, you're talking just multiply that out and just making those cars blows us out of the budget for 1.5 degrees. We don't have enough metal in the world enough stuff to make all of those cars. So the whole approach where I agree totally with Matthew is, and again, that someone else has pointed out that you can't separate cars from urban form. They're two sides of the same coin. We drive our cars because that's how our cities were designed. And in most cities, as Matthew said, you don't really need the car. So. Yes, I agree again with Matthew. Out in the burbs, people are going to have to have their cars. It's just way out in the burbs and rural. But electric bikes work in suburbs because most rides are still under five miles. So you can electrify the suburbs with e-bikes. You can get people onto regular bikes in denser cities. And we have to, my big objection is we've just let electric cars suck up all the air in the room. All the conversation is about them instead of looking at all of these other alternatives which are out there. With that, I'm going to have a sip of wine. It's late in Toronto. <laughs> Somebody's calling awesome. for Lloyd for prime minister. <laughs> I'd like to just jump in on uh, on Lloyd's point around life cycle carbon emissions because, yes, there are higher inputs for an electric vehicle compared to an internal combustion engine vehicle. But when you factor in the incredible carbon savings on the fuel, the operating costs, electric vehicles are a massive carbon savings over their internal combustion comparisons. We've done studies on this. You can look at a report we put out called Sustainable Drive, Sustainable Supply. It's on our Berkeley Law website. We've surveyed all the literature on this. Uh, if you look at the life cycle emissions, it's anywhere between a 30 to 90% carbon savings on these vehicles. Absolutely, and, I agree. And it really you just depends on You still have it up front though. Use. Yeah, absolutely, which is why we wanna build communities where people don't have to get vehicles and what I would like to see is, this is really a question about our, our public spaces here. And when we're talking about retrofitting suburbs to make them more bike friendly, more transit friendly, it's a question of what do we do with our public spaces? Are we gonna dedicate all these lanes to private vehicles or are we going to make safe 
separate infrastructure for bicycling. Cause I'll tell you, my kids are out biking. I used to bike to work regularly. Now I take transit. Of course, well, nowadays I'm at home all the time, like, uh, like everyone else who's lucky enough to be in the keyboard economy. But you know, I'm worried about them. And I was worried for my own safety because it's not safe to be out there with vehicles. And if you, if you build the infrastructure in a logical way to create a safe barrier between bicyclists and cars, we won't have these kinds of issues. I mean, nobody should be worried about their safety, like what Grace was saying. I mean, that breaks my heart to hear Grace say that she just anticipates she's going to get mowed down by a vehicle. And I, I, and I, I don't know people directly, but I heard plenty of stories of people getting hit by cars, killed by cars. It's a tragedy, but it's, it's a question of how we dedicate our public infrastructure. So that is really the central issue. When it, If we're going to have any kind of debate, which is really a phony debate between bikes and EVs, it's really about the public infrastructure. Sandy, you had a comment? Sandy, you had a comment? Well, I, well, I always have comments, but these guys have done such a great job. Yeah, I think my one comment is that, um, I, I, you know, it, it, it makes me feel so responsible. Um, Ethan's absolutely right. It's really about our infrastructure, but we also have to make not using a car sexy. And that means having public spaces and uh, schools, shops, and services in ways that you can get to other than by vehicle. And I think I, we know how to do it. We just don't yet have the political um, interest to do that. And that needs by and that needs to happen by doing demonstration projects and uh, making areas attractive. And I, I think this group is 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 getting that that place. But for me, it's the other end. It's not so much talking about how to limit the use of certain vehicles and types of vehicles, but it's making it such a wonderful environment to walk, bike, or take transit. that You don't even think about taking a vehicle. Yeah, I mean, the, the, talked about, can, I'm just going to jump in. Sure, sorry, sure go for it. One of things that we haven't talked about that's related to that is, yes, the infrastructure is extremely important, but cars need to change. And it's not just their fuels. Cars need to change. We have to stop building giant cars. We need to talk about speed delimiters. We need to do all the things to cars that they're doing to scooters. We need to control them. And nobody is talking about that. But those are the things that are going to make people feel safe and want to walk and ride their bikes and be in communities, even if they don't have the infrastructure yet. And as long as we're building giant cars, the infrastructure isn't, I mean, a little, even a little curb, like that's a protection that's not going to save us. And that's one conversation I never hear. Like, I don't know, are people so afraid of the car companies that we can't talk about speed delimiters? Um, do we need a new, another Ralph Nader to come and write a new unsafe at any speed and like apply it? I don't know, but that is an issue that needs to be addressed right away. Well, the, the, the big issue beyond that is that our politics are driven by big business, basically. And oil and automotive is a huge business. And automotive marketing is a huge business. The $14 billion a year industry in just America, $14 billion of education it's being pumped into everyone's brains. It's creating that sexy culture that um, that uh, the previous, I forget who was just talking about that, but uh, yes, the, you know, that's the culture that's being created in America. And it's like, how do you stop that? 
Yeah. How do you stop? We need to do though. We need to change that. We need so, to find the way. In terms of we, like who was that? So I think honestly, and I'm coming from maybe a little bit of a socialist perspective, but I think it needs to come from labor, honestly, um, and the people actually involved in making these cars. The car industry is a huge part of our um, our economy, um, not just the manufacturer, but the repair, the you know selling, um, uh, whatever else, detailing, you know, customization. Uh, whatever huge, else. Huge, huge, huge. I mean, amounts. like, yeah, I went, I was just uh, upstate not too long ago and uh, there was a town of 400 people. I looked up the population and in the little town square where, you know, everybody was, there was probably two auto dealerships, you know, a repair place, three gas stations and like two restaurants. You know what I mean? Like the whole economy is people buying and fixing each other's cars. And it, you like, what do you do with that? You, like, what do you say? Like, you don't have a job anymore. <laughs> you know, like your industry is, I mean, you know, industries go to the way of the Dodo, but like, you know, you're going to just wreck the whole economy if we're like, all right, ban cars. So, you know, it's it's hard work of uh, organizing uh, labor to, I, I don't really have experience in this myself, but, um, you know. Yeah, because labor, if, like you take your average trade worker or, mm -hmm. or so, a plumber or whatever, you know, automotive they're driving trucks and they're big but not, not even that i mean in the, yeah. the industry itself like i imagine that if everybody at the gm plant organized and said we're not making giant you know five ton whatever things anymore like we're making yeah that, that would be that gigantic would be insane, that would be, that would be <laughs> I, that's a very hard sell i mean i used it's to work in car sell. marketing and the, yeah, this is like this like, is like their religion you know what i mean yeah, I, yeah, I have to jump in here. I have to okay. jump in here and talk about when I was an undergrad at Berkeley in the 1980s. I took a sociology of healthcare, America's healthcare system class, and back in the 1980s, they um, for every car that GM sold, about seven thousand dollars went into healthcare benefits for their workers and their retirees, uh, and and that was back in the 1980s. <laughs> And they lost like one or two thousand dollars on every small car, and they and they made up for it by selling big cars. And but back in the 1980s, we were really hopeful that we would get single payer or Medicare for all, and that GM would be alleviated from these obligations to all these um, people with broken bodies and um, old retirees, and that in return we would get a right sizing of the car industry, like. Healthcare is the tail that wags the dog. It is causing, <laughs> it is causing, uh, cars are a pyramid scheme. You know, they keep, they have to sell more <laughs> cars and they have to sell more bigger cars and more expensive cars in order to fund healthcare. And like all the things that we're talking about, climate change is safer streets, housing everyone. You know, we, we have let capitalism try and it failed. So let someone else try. And in fact, we have data points from around the world that that say that uh, we are on the wrong path, but there there's ways we can course correct. Okay, let's, why don't we, we know that we have a giant mess in front of us, right? So let's talk about the path to the promised land, which is like a small amount of electric vehicles. There may be golf cart sized and we have electric bikes and scooters everywhere and we're rebuilding our cities to be walkable how do we get there what what's going to make this cultural change happen Political realistically leadership. 
takes, it takes organizing, you know, it takes political organizing on each one of these issues. And there, you know, and this idea that, you know, we can't, EVs are taking up all the oxygen there and therefore we're taking our eye off the ball on urban redevelopment and land, better land use planning. I just don't agree with that. I think it takes separate coalitions to advance all of these things. We need to be pushing all of them at once. And there are coalitions that can be mobilized. You know, Matthew could talk about what California Yimby is doing, but that's really what it's going to take to see change. I will say on the land use side, that is extremely thorny because it's so decentralized in California. Every single city, every single county gets to set their own rules for how infrastructure is laid out, how the town can get developed. And that's been a disaster for California. It's been a disaster, I think, for most of the United States. That's why we have a lot of the car-oriented infrastructure that we have. Uh, but again, that takes organizing too. Can we take remove some of that sovereignty that locals have and, and put that into you know, higher level entities that are seeing the bigger picture, the regional picture, the state level picture about how we want to see development go forward. But that too takes organizing to get those laws passed at the state level or to make sure regional entities are empowered over more parochial cities and counties that might be captured by NIMBYs and pro automobile interests. I, I think there's, so, so I want to echo what Ethan said about organizing. And there's a couple of things that I think is, is it, it's, it's not a vulnerability. It's just something that we all see. There are so many opportunities at the city level to change this. And in fact, most of the decisions that have to be made about urban infrastructure are made at the city level. Now the states have roles in terms of the rules and the funding they provide, and then the feds have a role in the big funding that it provides. But if a city wants to change the way its streets are used, it can, you can, I mean, if you have the council members to do it, you could just walk down to city hall and make them do it. And that's, that's a huge opportunity for organizing because your leverage is huge at the city level compared to the state and federal level. So that's the one thing. I also want to point out, um, and somebody put in here uh, the carbon tax, I, I regret to say to Lloyd, the carbon tax you need to address emissions from a car is about 150 bucks a ton. There's no political will in the United States for a carbon tax that high. Sad to say, I wish it, I wish it would work, but you need a very high carbon tax. The, the final thing I just want to say is, is a lot of this sort of revolves around this controversy about using the term banned cars. And, um, and I just want to say where, where that comes from and at least how I use it, because I do say it um, and I, it's, it's, it's partly tongue in cheek. But in this, there's this principle in organizing that you got to get something, you got to get people to rally around a vision. And that vision isn't always going to be appealing to everybody, but the way it works is you don't need everybody. You need the people who are willing to show up and do the work. Because at the end of the day, what you end up with is a compromise. And you need people who are actually going to go to City Hall, who are actually going to write the letters to the legislature and to their council members and to their Congress people. And that takes time and that takes commitment. And, and what I see in the sort of ban cars rubric is that we're not going to ban cars. Like that's not going to happen. I mean, I wish, you know, I wish everywhere were Paris, because then I could say, well, maybe we will, but not everywhere is Paris. But what we do have is we have the ability to organize people who are like-minded, who see a pathway, who see a future where we're returning this urban land that we stole from communities of color to build highways. We're tearing down this route. There's a movement in Oakland to tear down the 980. That's going to happen in my lifetime. Okay, they're going to tear down that freeway they're gonna figure out how to return that land. They're gonna do right to return. That's gonna happen. I will not be dead when that happens. That's gonna happen while I am wow. alive. And really? that's- Really, right to that's return, the, wow. That's the sort of thing, but that's the sort of thing where you can actually, but you need people who see that vision. Like, so so banned cars isn't like, no, we're not gonna take your, we're not gonna take away your Subaru. But what we are gonna do is we're gonna build a movement 
of people who see this vision is like, what are the little things you can do in your life that lead to this in the future? And I see banned cars as sort of like, well, eventually, in fact, cities will have to ban cars. I mean, if we're thinking a hundred years down the road, do you, what would happen if we just said to LA, everybody has a car and drives everywhere? It's totally untenable. It's, it's just, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not a realistic, you, you wouldn't have anything but parking lots and pavement. So there's a, there's a physical limit and there's sort of like this pathway part of it, which is we do need to organize a movement, in my opinion. I, I, I meet people all the time who share this vision and they also understand like, we're not gonna take away the F-150. Um, but but it's it's about finding that community of interest and activating people to actually do the work. And where, where I sort of get, I mean, I know I can be a little flip on Twitter sometimes, but I just get dismissive when it's like, how many letters have you written? Did you go to city hall? Did you talk to city councilor? Do you do any of this? Or are you just bitching and moaning? Yeah. It's fine to bitch and moan, don't get me wrong, but I've got a community of people in Berkeley who, and we have built a movement here. We're going to transform the parking legislation in Berkeley. We're gonna eliminate parking minimums. We're going to turn See, a four-lane, six-lane road into a two-lane road. Those things are going to happen. So there's there's a lot of the left is not uh, settled on the car issue, or at least not educated or settled on it. You know, it's like I've been getting into conversations with people on the left who I line up with politically on so many things, and then you start talking about cars. And you're talking Satan talk, you know, when you talk about banning their car and, and so forth. So there's a lot of work to do, even just on the the so-called left, you know, to get people yeah. on board to want to divorce themselves from cars. They've been so brainwashed for the last, you know. Yeah, I, I think I, yeah, I touched on this or I was trying to touch on it before, where I think when you say something like ban cars, even for an average person who is fully able-bodied and whatever else, you when you say that, you're talking about maybe taking away their mobility uh, because it's a somewhat partly a failure of imagination on other forms of mobility that are viable, um, a failure on, on imagination of what could be possible with some changes to, you know, their city laws and, you know, maybe it takes some time, but it could come. And then, you know, on the, the furthest end, probably people who really are reliant fully on, on being driven around or being driven or driving because of, whatever circumstance that is really out of their control. And because we've, you know, everything is built around the car, there's no other, there is no other alternative currently for them. I mean, so, you, yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say like, you know, band cars, I think is, is touchy like that because just so many people think it means why do you want to take away my mobility, my job, my life? When for me, I, I don't really say band cars that much, but what I, what I try to say is like, ban the need for cars <laughs> oh. you know like how do we how do we how do we make it so that we have full lives that are we have full access to civic life economic life social life whatever political life um in a landscape that isn't so dependent on this one particular form of automobility i mean on the, in that sense i do uh agree with matthew on the the shock value of just saying ban cars it just sort of gets people's attention and it gives you a chance to further the conversation versus like, you know, if, you, if you're more docile about, you know, well, we should reduce our car use and everybody's like, yeah, sure. But if you're talking banned cars then you're like stirring up an argument and I think there can be benefits to that. I mean, I, I think part of, the, part of the challenge here is that there are a lot of people who just love cars. They love driving. 
you know, it may be hard for us, you know, here because we're all seem pretty passionate about urbanism and walking and biking to understand that. But I mean, it, there's a lot of people that cars are a big part of their identity. There are a lot of people that, you know, if they if they grew up without a lot of money riding the bus, they can't wait to be able to afford to have a car and what that means, that mobility. So that's, you know, that's not everybody, but I don't know, that's 30% of the, of the human population, 40% in America. Uh, so that's something right there. Secondly, you've got a lot of places around the U.S. where it's just not feasible. I mean, it, we're mostly talking about rural areas, but, you know, they're just you, you can't take the car away. They literally have no way to get to get their food. So, you know, we have this is a very nuanced conversation you have to have. I think that the real sweet spot are the people who drive but hate having to drive. You know, there's a lot of people who for them, it's just I just got to. I have no other way to get around and I hate sitting in traffic, but there's no other alternative and you're going to inconvenience me if you take it away. However, if you could provide those people with more convenient ways to get around, they would be, they would welcome the alternative. So that's really the sweet spot. And that's where I think we should be focusing our efforts. I'd love to put a question to the group because I, I love what everyone is saying. Um, agree with everything. I feel like that it, would help our weak-willed leaders, people who don't wanna, you know, the de Blasio's who don't wanna jump in and, and do this when it's so obvious to really put into, to make it science, like a, what is the number? How many, how many cities, how many people have to get out of their cars and, you know, do we need bike lanes? How many cities, you know, I mean, to really just, put it out there as like a number because it, it feels like to me and I read Costa's paper, which is amazing. Um, but it's, you know, he, it, it doesn't quite, it, I mean, it lays it all out in this, this three-dimensional math of the EVs and the grid and then the time and the VMT growing. But it, I guess the question is how many cities have to have bike lanes so we can say to our leaders, we need these, LA needs these, New York needs these. So I don't have a number, but I will say that, um, you know, even if uh, most of the U.S. went bike friendly or whatever, we still live under capitalism. We still have this really dominant um, auto industry. And what we see happening right now, even, is that a lot of our older shitty cars with really bad emission standards um, are getting dumped in Africa um, and uh, into these communities where, you know, who knows what kind of, you know, horrors of colonization they've seen um and i guess like you know the why not just ship them to, to to there surely they could use them and it's destroying um you know environmentally uh you know in their 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 cities so even if we were to um you know eliminate 90 percent of the cars on the road here in the u.s um there's still a whole huge market uh in the world uh for, for cars um whether that's like from dumping you know our old shitty cars or selling to them. There's about two and a half billion cars on the road worldwide for 8 billion people. That's a lot of people who don't yet have a car and a lot of people who GM is gonna say they should have a car. So we can't think of it as just like a US thing. It really has to be a global worldwide uh, demand that this, this ceases. Um, I wanted to raise a point as an aging baby boomer about the whole issue of 70 million aging American baby boomers who are going to be 
very shortly because losing their ability to drive and nobody is paying any attention. We talk about bike lanes and I bike at 68 years old. I bike everywhere all the time, but a lot of other people my age do not. And a lot of people as they get older can't, and we're making no provision for this. We're not thinking about 70 million people. How are they going to get a quart of milk? How are they going to get to their doctor? And if we don't start planning now and say, cars are not the answer for the very old, they're not the answer for the very young. They are uh, an answer for a sort of middle group of people who are able to do it and can afford to do it. And we're ignoring the fact of the huge numbers of people who cannot. And a lot of people say, oh, the aut autonomous cars will be coming and saving the older, older people. But they're not. We know that they're a fantasy. So what we have to be doing now is like planning for this and say, you know, electric cars are not going to be the answer for 70 million aging baby boomers. And nobody's talking about that. Yeah, what about know, auto? What about auto automated vehicles? What do you think about that? No. Well, yeah, I, a couple of things on with Lloyd's point. So in in high school and then again in college, I, I lived in Spain for a while, and what immediately struck me about living in in a small Spanish town was all the older people who were out and about, and they could walk. You know, they walked to the plaza. They could you know, interact with each other. They'd walk to get groceries. My grandma lived in downtown Boston. She did the same thing. She, she, you know, lived to be 90. She walked to get groceries up until right before she died. So a lot of this is about urban design and giving seniors a chance to live in a place where they can walk and don't have to be reliant on, on vehicles. I know Lloyd sounds skeptical about autonomous vehicles. I don't know. I don't really know where they are technologically, although we're seeing, you know, some pretty aggressive deployments. Some people say they're a long ways off, but it does seem like that's something to keep in mind in both a negative and a positive way. Positive meaning that if we had autonomous vehicles, people may give up private vehicle ownership and they may just subscribe to a vehicle service that's right-sized for when they need to get around. You know, you can get a single occupant vehicle or a big SUV if your whole family's going somewhere. Uh, and that could also free up a lot of parking space, a lot of garages that could be repurposed. That's the sort of best case scenario. And also, uh, you know, to Lloyd's uh, issue, potentially vehicle rides for people who are disabled or elderly can't drive otherwise. The negative side is that it could lead to, and also one more positive side, it could lead to a huge decrease in car accidents, which are mostly caused by human error. So that would be yeah. a pretty amazing thing. But on the negative side, it could lead to a huge increase in driving. If people essentially all have access to their own robotic chauffeurs, they may live far away from where they work and be just able to conk out and surf their, you know, their phones and their social media while they're being driven around by a robot. So that would be the negative on autonomous vehicles. But I do think it's worth mentioning autonomous vehicles as part of this, because that is something that technologically I think is coming at one point or another. Well, it all comes back down to land use, as you say, that people in Spain and people in cities can live that way. 75% of Americans live in car-dependent suburbs. 75% of American baby boomers live in car-dependent suburbs. And they are just going to, you know, in 10 years when the real peak of the baby boomer hits the late 70s and 80s and starts having real problems, we're all just going to be wondering why didn't we see this coming? And it's just straight out, out, out demographics and it's in our face. And we should be talking about that a lot more. This is people now, people live like this now. This isn't the future. 
Yeah, my mom actually was a a victim of this situation. She lived in the suburbs, and as soon as she lost her ability to drive, like mine too. Yeah, was it was it was devastating for her. She was at home a lot and wasn't able to get out and do things. I think it definitely affected her. When my father lost his um, when my father lost his driver's license. California took it away because he's an unsafe driver. He decided he was going to move to Taipei because he says you can't live in the U.S. without being able to drive. And it, wow. and I'm very glad that he's in Taiwan. As someone who visits family in Japan and Taiwan, and I was an exchange student in Germany, I have seen another way, and it's much much better. Um, we have to like it's good that we look at Europe, but we should also look at Latin America and Asia because these are economies that.、Um, Have leapfrogged us in terms of adopting、um, adopting solutions, technological solutions, while、um, leaving fewer people behind. And they did it with when they weren't as wealthy as the U.S. You know, the thing here also is the street grid. I mean, that's going to be around for five hundred years. It's not like they're going to. You know, like there's so many places in Los Angeles where it was built for cars in the last 50 years. Like they're not going to plow out the street grid and put in a more walkable street grid. We're kind of stuck with this, right? Like, like this is happening in cities across the United States where we've developed in the last 50, 60 years these car-oriented cities and. Well, I think a lot of that is the land use, right? Yeah, Just, yeah. You know, but how how are we gonna? I mean, we can't. Those, I mean, that would cost trillions of dollars to basically. Not necessarily. There's plow there's, plow down. There are quick ways to make big differences on the streets, and they're not ideal, but they can make a really big difference. And they're you know. Paint and posts and like just getting it started so people can see how it can be different. You can narrow a street, you can slow traffic, you can make it safer for people who are not in cars in a lot of ways without digging everything up. Ideal would be to dig everything up, but you can still do it without all of that. You could do it cheaply, and they're starting to do that. You know, the California、um, Active Transportation Program is starting to talk about doing what they're calling quick build projects. Where you just come in and cheaply throw something down, and the idea is, people can experience it, and then go, "Oh, this is so good. Okay, let's invest in this." So it's like a, a step towards doing that, but it is possible. We're not stuck with the infrastructure we have. I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, where I live right now, I'm in a suburb, and. The next block is a quarter mile away, or even farther. You know, the next street, and I am. I mean, that's not unusual. You know, there's a lot of places in Los Angeles where you'll find a single city block is like a quarter mile long, and that's you know how. Yeah. I mean, there's cities across the United States that have been built out this way, and it's not like, you know, they're going to plow through houses to make another street an eighth mile away, or I don't know. Well, that's true. It's harder to make them walkable, but I'd say it's very easy to make those places bikeable. 
and I'm talking specifically about the San Fernando Valley, which has these ridiculous wide streets, but it has, at, right of, now, yeah. it has a lot of really nice, quiet neighborhood streets that nobody's on and nobody thinks about that. And if they were able to make those connected as bikeways, it would be awesome. They would be really good bike connected routes that you can ride on with very few cars. And, and uh, I mean, they have the grid there, they have the space, all they need to do is make it so that people know how to get through. And then when you get to one of those major streets, you can cross without taking your life in your hands. That's what's missing in, L in the suburbs in LA right now, is the intersections are all messed up. I, I wanna, um... I want to like jump in on what Melanie was saying, because like we have to remember that Malibu takes up a lot of space, both in the figurative, uh, in the literal sense and, and in the figurative sense in terms it's always shown on TV, but a more typical, a more typical, um, a more typical density is like 7,000 people per square mile. And so your grocery store and all that stuff is going to be within one to one and a half miles. And in LA, we have grid, we have arterial grids that are roughly half mile to one mile apart. So if we just put a bike lane on a protected bike lane on every arterial, we give up this on street parking and put in a protected bike lane. And we also time the lights for a green wave like they do in Germany. We could retrofit very cheaply. And not only would it be cheap, but it would be cheaper than what we are doing right now. Because as cars get heavier and heavier, they rip up the roads more, they create more um, air pollution. And bicycles, because they're so light, it would take more than a thousand years for a bicycle to do the same damage as an average sized car. And it would take us like 3000 years of riding our bicycle to do the same damage as an SUV. So we are spending so much money supporting car culture and it's not even, it's making us unhappy. Um, and we, right now we have an opportunity in the regional housing needs assessment. Our region needs to zone for 1.3 million new homes. So let's quit doing the stupid things. Let us put the homes in areas where um, you can live a car light uh, lifestyle where you won't need to have one car per driver. Maybe you have one car and it's a smaller car and when you wanna take a road trip, you'll, um, you'll rent like a minivan for your annual road trip. But most of the time you can build homes so that most of the time for 99% of your life, you don't need a giant car. And maybe for like um, four days out of the week, you wouldn't even need a car at all. That sounds like a, a beautiful future to hope for. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up here because we're, we're at, we're at our time for bike talk, but, uh, what a panel, I mean, so many educated people and uh, great discussion. I mean, I want to thank everybody for, for coming on the show and a couple of people had to leave, but, uh, you know, it was a great conversation and, um, you know, why don't we go through and give everybody's, uh, kind of social media or contact um give them a chance to promote we'll, we'll uh why don't we start with uh well melanie we know you're on streets you're on streets blog but why don't we why don't we get a few more uh what, give us a twitter handle some things where we can we can stay in touch california streets blog i think it's uh streets blog california on twitter at streets blog california and it's
We've got LA Streets blog, San Francisco Streets blog. There's a USA site. There's a New York site. But California sort of encompasses all the California sites. So go there for every California piece of information you ever need. All right. Um, let's take it over to Lloyd. Lloyd, why don't you give us your infos? Just Lloyd Alter, all one word, on Twitter and on Instagram. And I write about all this stuff on treehugger.com. Treehugger.com. Okay. Harv, take it away first. Okay. Well, I, I must be missing got something. Some? I must be missing something big time here because I don't see the problems that uh, people have popped up with. For instance, uh, rural transportation. Well, how many, for how many hundred? Well, not too many hundreds, for a hundred years or so. You live out in the country, you needed to go somewhere, you go to a train station, jump on the train, and you, you get where you're going. Oh my God, we could have a whole other conversation about no, train transport. Gonna, that's all I'm going to say about but, that. But uh, yeah, just do but, you have a do you have a Twitter handle you want to throw out there? I don't do Twitter. I don't no. do Twitter. Okay, your email oh, okay. address. It's uh, Harvoyan, one word, at Juno.com, and on Facebook I'm Igor Voven, V-O-V-E-N, which is actually closer to my original Russian name. And I, I rant a bit on, on Facebook, but I've been tapering off on social media quite a bit. It's far too intrusive and I can't <laughs> constant bombardment with commercials. Okay, what I was gonna say is that I don't like bike lanes. I don't think we need them. I don't use them. What I do is, well, first of all, I live up a two mile grade, two mile long grade. I live at the top of the hill. It's three miles to the nearest food market. I ride my bicycle, I ride my push bikes, that's a push bike does not have any uh, motors, more than my electric bike to get groceries. If I have to travel farther than I can pedal, I take Metro Rail. Uh, and I, I use the grid, I stay off the main streets, I worked out the little side streets, they're always empty, people will ignore the side streets, uh, except for commuting commuting hours, of course, but that's what I do. And it works out for me and I've been doing it for a long time. All right. Life goals. I want to, I want to be riding my bike when I, when I grow up to be Harv's age. So um, I'm going to keep trying to do that. Okay. Uh, let's go to Nicole. Let's get your social media uh, yep, Context. I'm Nicole A. Murray on Twitter. Um, I'm also with New York City Democratic Socialists of America Eco-Socialist Working Group. Uh, we changed our handle, I forget what it is, but if you Google uh, DSA Eco-Socialist New York, you'll find us. Um, so if you ever want to join a meeting, we post there. Uh, and I have written a few things in Streets Blog New York, but just two pieces. Um, and I think the last thing I want to say uh, before, as you close out is, um, yeah, just think about, uh, the people's relationship to mobility and power. And then what we should be talking about isn't just not only um, decarbonization and cleaning it up, but making sure that people have um, access to more power in their lives, uh, personally, interpersonally, socially, economically, um, health, um, all these things. Um, so, you know, in some cases there may be the need for a car to do that uh, currently, um, but in a lot of cases we need to degrade the, um, reduce the, the the outsized influence that the car has on um, people's relationship to power. So I'll just end on that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Nicole. Um, who do we have left? Grace, why don't we get your social medias, if you have any? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at GSPeng. And I'm also, um, my bio has a link to my blog where I blog about science and urbanism quite a bit. You can also find me through League of Women Voters California website. Okay, awesome. And then we have uh, Sandy James. We had a lot of great guests today. Thanks everybody for coming on. That's amazing. Hi, Sandy. I think you're on mute. Maybe. She put yeah. Chat. Um, Sandy. Hold up. Hold up a piece of paper with your social <laughs> media on it. No, I'm just kidding. She's Sandy James Plan. She's Sandy James Planner.wordpress.com. She said in chat. Okay. And Sandy awesome. James Plan on Twitter. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Sandy. Uh, I think that gets everybody. Do we get everybody? Well, Lindsay. Well, you're you're with us. I think we've got everybody, and we're gonna wrap up the show. And uh, once again, I want to thank everybody and um, we'd love to have all of you back on for another discussion. We could talk about this forever. So it was fun. Thank you. Thank all right. You. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All <laughs> right. Take care, everybody. I rise in the morning and greet the day. Pull out the bike and I'm on my way. The transportation shows I care. Every turn of the pedal cleans the air. Green in the green. I'm saving the planet, just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas, a tiny carbon footprint up your ass. I'm on a motherfucking bike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 